We are live from TechNet Cyber 2023. I'm Kate Macri, Deputy Editor at GovCIO Media and Research. And joining me today is Mark Gorak, who is one of the cyber workforce leads at DOD. Mark, could you remind us of your exact title before we start off here? <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Uh, I'm the Principal Director for Resources and Analysis in, as for the Deputy CIO. So to start us off, can you give me an update on DOD's upcoming cyber workforce implementation plan, how that's going to build on the strategy, and would love to get an idea of what the first steps of the plan will be and what you will consider to be the highest priority as you're building that out. Great. So as you know, we released the strategy about two months ago, and the strategy has four pillars uh, and four main goals. The implementation plan we expect to be out the end of next month, uh, June, and uh, that will have it will expand on each of those four goals to achieve those to achieve those pillars. We're going to actually measure by the pillars for identification, recruitment, retention, and development. Those will be our met metrics. Right now, we have 41 uh, different initiatives within the implementation plan, and we've designed it to be. I'll say innovative, only from the guidance of we've been at this about a decade trying to fix this problem, and it's only growing worse. So today, the department has about 30,000 shortages in the cyber workforce. That's military, that's civilians. Um, I'd like to get to the point where you can count contractors, too. That's part of the implementation plan. But I say we've been innovative. You know, if, if what we've been doing isn't working, we need to do something different. So we've been working with all the components to try to come up with new ideas, new initiatives, fully expecting that some of them won't work. So we're going to measure them over time. For example, if we have a recruitment initiative, uh, whether that's a pay compensation um, or we specialize in a work role and give them additional uh, incentives, but we don't see an increase in retention or recruitment, then that's not working. We have to try something else. So the idea of the implementation plan is we have a five-year horizon, five horizon until 2027, and our real focus is first year and last year. And then in between, we've left that kind of open so we can adjust and scale as we go across. So the, one of the key initiatives under Pillar 3, which is culture, to me is the first thing we have to change. We have to change the mindset of the components. We've given them the authorities, and we've given them the money, uh, through 24 to actually program to do retention incentives, to do um, recruitment incentives, but most of them don't utilize it. It's a cultural shift uh, in a mindset. And getting that all the way down to the lowest levels is one of our greatest challenges. Like I said, the 30,000 is only increasing every day, not decreasing. So we really have to get out of it. Compensation is just one of the key metrics that everybody's interested in. Um, the other, the second thing I'll say is the foundation under identification pillar is the data. So we've coded about 153,000 positions. Uh, we still have some work to do on the Army side. Um, and then as we expand uh, the work roles, we still need to uh, code those also. So what I've ch challenged the team with is I want to be agile, flexible, and responsive to the workforce. When's the last time you heard those three words in far as a personnel system. So that's where our goal is, but trying to change that culture, like I said, to actually implement that is one of our largest challenges. What do you think, just as a follow-up to that, what do you think is 
what's holding the components back? You said that it's a culture shift there. Like, what Yeah. So let me give you some examples. So within um, cyber accepted service, which is a very small subset of our whole cyber population, it's, it's accepted service, which means it's different, which means it's unique. And our HR systems, our HR specialists out there are um, all focused on, you know, the traditional way we've always hired and we've always done it that way because that's what they know. That's how they're graded and incentivized not to have appeals, to, do, you know, make it competitive. But Cyber Accept Service throws all that out the window in a way and it has its own way of doing business, direct hire authority, et cetera, as well as compensation. So trying to get that word out and have them actually do it our way, even those who know they're not as comfortable with it because it's exception. So anytime we have exceptions to policy or exceptions to procedures, it's very difficult to get the word out, to get the whole community to do it. I'll give you another example on retention. Um, we have retention and sometimes we can give up to 50% um, retention for a year. Well, I was just talking to, uh, I'm not going to say the service, uh, component level, and they have refused to do it. And what they've done is they say, well, if you stay here for five years, then we'll give you a retention. That is a cultural anomaly because our workforce only stays for about three years. Yeah, like nobody stays. So I job. said, well, how is this retention incentive yeah. going for five years? How many people are taking it? Yeah. Zero. Well, then that's not working. Right. So um, we, those are the kind of things I think we really have to change Um Within the culture of the organizations. Yeah. I mean, especially if we're talking about tech careers, like Silicon Valley, like nobody stays at a job that long. Like that's just not how people so with those not, skill sets. We are, think. that's a true statement. And we in DOD are actually doing a little bit better on retention than, okay. than um, the, the big companies, right? Uh, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera. We're doing a little bit better. But my attitude on retention is I never want to be at 100%. I want to retain the best. Well, how do you know they're the best? How do you measure that? How do you then give incentives for that population and not the population that you don't want to? Having said that, we're 30,000 short. I need to retain everybody who is qualified to do the job. Um, you know, just like recruitment, I'll take anybody, right? If they're qualified and they can get the training on the civ side. Um, by the way, we do that on the mill side. I don't have a problem uh, with recruitment on the mill side. As soon as a slot opens up, the, you know, the high school grads out there, some education are filling it. Our problem on the military side is the scaling of that, the training pipeline. We need to expand that, I think, to have more. Um, and then the big problem is after four years, you've now educated them. You've given them a couple of years of experience. They're very marketable. So then how do you retain them? And again, I look at that not as a competition, but I look at it as a partnership. I think it's good. We just have to track those people who want to leave and maybe offer them reserves or guard or bring them into the civilian side. They don't all, and if they go to the contractor side, great. If they go to private industry out there, great. That's all, that's all um, helping the national challenge here and the national problem of filling this workforce. Right. So when people talk about cyber workforce, they often focus on either the cyber hygiene element of it and that like people working in IT or not even necessarily IT, just, you know, people using IT to do their jobs, which is everyone like needing to be better about cyber hygiene. Um, but then when we're talking about people who actually like work in cyber, uh, people tend to focus on maintaining cyber defenses, but I'm interested in your perspective on 
I guess a layer deeper than that. So like from my understanding, in order to be really good at your job in cybersecurity, you have to understand how the software works. You have to understand how that hardware works, the IT, like how all of it works together, like the ins and outs of it, how it's used, how you know people are accessing it so that you can properly protect it. Because like if you don't understand it, then you're not going to be very good at your job and being cybersecurity professional. So how does education play a role in that kind of workforce development and upskilling at DOD? And what would you say are the gaps there, if any? Loaded question. (laughs) Lots of parts to it. Uh, Let me just start with earlier this year, we published our 8140 uh, manual. It's 81.03, which actually sets the standards for qualification in each of the work roles. Uh, We have 71 work roles today. The manual focused on the first 50 plus work roles, which were all cyber related cyber effects, cyber ops, cybersecurity. So within each of the work roles, we have knowledge, skills, abilities, and tasks specified in each work role. The qualification manual then says, okay, in order to be a basic level, an intermediate level, or an advanced level in each of those skills, here here are the requirements. In the implementation plan coming up, where we want to go with this is an assessment-based so today we, we rely on education, whether it's formal education through a two-year, four-year degree program or even PhD or master's or higher. Uh, we also look at certifications, how many certifications do you have in the field or the expertise you have. Um, at the basic level, I agree with you. I think at some level, all people, right, we are all have to understand, even you and I have to understand when you get an email that says click here and you don't understand who it's from, you don't understand what it is, you shouldn't click there. Because that's going to be a cybersecurity risk, you know, or, uh, you know, taking over your computer, you know, ransomware. So uh, that that level of training is kind of the base, very basic fundamental. Uh, And also at our panel yesterday, um, Paul Stanton said, you know, you have to understand also how like the iPhone or a computer works in order to understand how to defend it and vice versa, how to attack it if you're on that side of the of of the. Um, spectrum. So with our manual, we qualify the basic, intermediate, and advanced levels, like I said. And let me just cover development and education. So they're two different things. We view education as giving the proper tools to be able to specialize in an area. You know, tools like critical thinking. Development is all about, okay, now we're going to refine those and give you the specific qualifications or um, tools that you need to actually do your specific work role, you know, whether it's offensive, defensive, or vice versa. Um, and then our idea is, okay, if you have passed a, you know, a cyber range assessment instrument, I'll call it, um, you should be qualified for the job. You know, no interview necessary per se. Um, if you can do the job, if you have the skills, we shouldn't really care if it's a certification or a degree. Go do the job. Having said that, this technology is constantly changing. So we also have to look at all the force that we already have today and how do we keep them up to date with the changing technologies. So again, we're looking at annual you know, assessments on that. And also as a leader, you want your workforce to grow. So if you have most of your workforce at the basic level, well, next year I want them at the intermediate level. And maybe three to five years, I want them at the advanced level, depending on what the work role is. So we are, through our data system, we actually are going to track that, um, not only how many people we have and how many people we need, 
turnover rates and all that, but also what level of education in that paradigm that they have. So you mentioned this a little bit earlier, the, the concept of the partnership with industry in terms of, uh, you know, like a revolving door of, you know, you, you guys take people from industry to work for you and vice versa. And I feel like that's something that DOD has talked a lot about around like easing the revolving door between government and industry and how to attract more industry talent into DOD jobs. Aside from pay disparity, what would you say are the biggest challenges to acquiring the best tech talent for DOD cyber jobs? And what are you doing to address those? You're just full of loaded questions today. <laughs> Sorry. So, so great questions. So I think the, the biggest advantage DOD has, um, bar none from any other federal agency, is our mission. So we really have to get after this is what you're able to do. I think Generation Z, one of the key things that they're after is, and there are surveys this year even about this, if you look at some Gardner surveys and whatnot, Generation Z is willing to take a 20 to 25% pay cut if you can articulate what mission they're doing and if they're interested in doing that mission. So pay is not necessarily the number one priority for them. It's what are they going to do and how can they contribute? Um, and then in addition to that, you have to show them the path to, to excel. Right? Are you going to give them training? Are you, is there succession planning? Is there talent management planning? If you can show that up front, traditionally DOD has not done that. Um, and then, again, I keep saying this, it's partnership, not competition. So the other concept is permeability. How do we go between, so let's say uh, a, a young person comes in to a military department, they serve four to six years there as a cyber analyst, um, they leave, they go to industry. We need to be able to track that person and say, hey, we have this hot cyber topic problem, pipeline, hack, whatever it is, can you come back and work with us for three months, six months, two weeks even? And, and in that agreement, what our plan is, we'll maintain, we'll track you, and then we'll maintain your clearance because you already had the clearance. So that way, they get something out of it. They get their security clearance maintained, um, and then we get something on it. If we need them, we can contact them. Uh, so, the, 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 again, the issues to overcome here are who's going to do this, who's going to track them, who's going to know to call them when they have um, a problem or something they want them to work out. So we have to work out all of those finite details to make the actual program work. Uh, but part of our job at OSD is to give the authority um, and somewhat some of the funding to make that happen. Is that kind of similar to the direct hiring authority kind of concept, or is that... No, uh, direct hiring is different. So this would be direct hiring. If I know you're a good talent and I think you're qualified, uh, I can hire you off the street. Okay, you submit your resume. The resume says you're qualified or I give you an assessment test at a cyber range. Boom, you pass. You understand the job. And then I can hire you. That's direct hiring authority. This is actually after that. Let's say you're direct hired in as a civil servant. And you spend two to three years with us, which is about the average. And now you want to go to industry. We should be encouraging that, by the way, because we want, I want Amazon to do all the training and development for me, right? I want them to teach them all of the skills and tricks. We will too, but it helps to have both sides. And then you still want access to that talent. So the permeability is being able to go back and forth between the systems, between civil servant, between military, 
I mean, we have any problems in the mill side going from compo two and three back to compo one. It's not a trivial process. It's actually a pain with a lot of paperwork because of different titles. We need to make that simpler and easier yeah. for the population. Is it because of maintaining an active clearance? Is that one of the big barriers to being able to go back and forth between industry and DOD, especially when we're talking about these kinds of jobs? Yeah, as long as they maintain their clearance, it's not a big deal. The big deal is the cultural shift. So as you want to search for that talent, how do you track that talent over time? Where do they go? Um, I, I have a hard enough time tracking the talent just in the civilian community. As a, you could be an army civilian, be hired in there, you're working in there, and then all of a sudden, ooh, NSA hired you, now you're a DOD civilian. Different system. I lose track of you. I, lo- I count you as a loss to the army and a gain to OSD. Well, the department, is, it's a zero balance. So how do we even track those kind of things? So the permeability aspect, we just, our job is to make it easier for people to do it and then to entice them to want to do it. Where the clearance becomes an issue is new hires who have never worked in this space before, even young talent. That's one of our biggest challenges. I mean, I might give you a four-year degree paid for by a scholarship uh, program. We have a cyber scholarship program. Um, For ours, it's required that you intern in the summer. The rationale behind that is you start interning, one, you know if you like the job or not. I don't want you to spend four years and realize you don't like it. Two, I start the security clearance process because it's TSSCI takes you know up to two years sometimes yeah, to get. Yeah. And by the way, the younger you are, the faster that process is because you have less history. The older you are, the longer that process is because you have a lot more history. Interesting. I never thought about it that way before. Um, I wanted to follow up quickly before we wrap up here on you mentioned uh, you know Gen Z is you know they they tend to be willing to take a 20-25% pay cut if they believe in the mission and that's more of like a priority. I wonder if that's because, you know, Gen Z is much younger. They're not in a position where they're like, you know, having families and buying homes yet. What does the millennial generation look like for you guys right now in terms of like trying to get cyber talent there? Is that more of a challenge? Like, especially on the compensation side, because millennials are more into their 30s now and are like, okay, I want to buy a house. Don't know if I can do that on a federal salary if I'm living in an expensive D.C. area. You know, is that is that something that you guys are seeing or is that not as much of a factor? Um, no, it, a lot of it's perception. So when people think they can go to Google and make 400K, and there are some, yeah. but the majority are not. Um, and I always communicate this way. In 2022, we could barely compete on a fiscal basis because all of the Fargo comp, you know, all of them were hiring. 2023 is a different world. The perception now is everyone's laying off. So we are much more competitive this year than we were last year. And it, it goes in cycles like that. So sometimes having a job is better off than having a high salary for a very short amount of time. One of the great, you know, I say missions are number one. And number two, for you ask most people, I interview everyone who comes to work for me, why they came into the federal government. One of the reasons is for stability. It gives them stability. Uh, The other tool in our kit bag, which we're trying to expand, is this whole notion, and thank you to COVID for this, of the hybrid workforce. I think millennials are very keen on this. They're almost demanding it. So how do we 
still entice that, still have that, and yet have performance, right? And how do we do that even for a lot of our, you know, requirements in SCIFs? So I think you can still work through that. You just have to work through the challenges of providing more flexibility to the workforce. And what does that look like? It's not a traditional way the DOD thinks. Uh, COVID has forced us now to think that way, as well as all, everyone. Uh, by the way, we've always had telework and remote work flexibilities in our policies, always. So it's not new, um, but what's new is the amount of people who are now on these policies. So that's the key change. And then to me, it's the technology that helps us run that. You know, whether it's Teams, communication tools, um, how do you get cyber programming tools together? How do you make cyber ranges at the unclass level so people can still work through development and practice and then bring them in for the actual coding? So that's some of the challenges, like I said, mostly cultural based that we have to get through our system. Awesome. Well, I don't want to keep you too long, but this was a really interesting interview. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Cybercast, along with GovCast and HealthCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com.